Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be going over origin of Alexandria, his understanding and interpretation of the golden chain as found in Romans 8, 29, and 30. This is a common Calvinistic proof text where they believe that this is all metaphysics. So we'll just read through this real quick, and then we'll talk about how the Calvinist interprets it. And Origen, in his commentary on Romans, he dedicates this section to fighting against Calvinistic notions, in which he proclaims that that's, that's the common opinion of his time. I remember he's, he's writing from Alexandria, which is a very Hellenized location. A lot of Gnostics running around. These Gnostic, Platonistic Christians have the common notion that uh, this is this is describing fatalism. Romans 8, 29, and 30 is fatalism. So let's read it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we'll look at that chain there. So he foreknows, then he predestines, and then he calls, and then he justifies and so this this is a golden chain going on right here and the calvinists take this as like a metaphysical uh thing where where this must lead to this and this must lead to this it's, it's a causal chain that nothing can interrupt and and uh, there's a hundred percent category everyone who's called is justified everyone who's justified is glorified these 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 are hard and fast categories and this is just paul telling his audience how the metaphysics work he's like okay let me he says audience here this paul writing he says audience sit around i'm going to explain to you some sort of uh metaphysical formulas that are in the ether and uh th this is just this, this is just how reality functions rather than probably um a better reading posed by origin of alexandria where these categories are loose not everyone who's called is justified there's there's mechanisms behind how God foreknows and, and in what way God foreknows and what foreknowledge actually means. And it doesn't mean that things are fated or that these groups don't have leakages or anything like that. Instead, we need to just read the Bible like normal people read the Bible. And he appeals to colloquialisms and uh, idiomatic speech, which very much I'm for the most part, in agreement with Origen. But remember, Origen is not an open theist. Uh, we have plenty of works by him where he describes God and uh, he takes exception to Celsus's uh, de depiction of God in the Old Testament and criticizing Christianity for giving God emotions and anger and things like that. And his counter-argument to Celsus is that, you know, um, you Platonists, you have the works of Homer, and you, you don't believe the things that are written about what Zeus does or anything like that. You have your Platonism, and you, you believe that these stories have like secondary meanings, and so you kind of dismiss the text. You should give the same leeway to the Christians in our treatment of the Old Testament. Of course, of course we don't believe that God has emotions or, or can change or anything like that. Of course we don't believe these things. We believe the same things as you. We just are asking for consistency so that you can give us the leeway to treat the Bible in the same way that you treat Homer. That, that's his argument. And uh, uh, we see that throughout his works, his writings, how he talks about God's uh, an unchangeableness and how he can't be affected from outside himself and being pure simplicity. And these types of ideas, 
origin of Alexandria is a definite Platonist. But he's a Platonist that believes in free will, and he believes in free will very strongly, to such an extent that this entire passage is about free will. Now, this passage is actually referenced, I, th I think it was by Calvinists who were trying to state that origin of Alexandria held these Calvinistic notions. And so it's like they, they had like little listings of verses and they're like, see, origin agrees with this on these, this and this, this point. But you turn to the context of it, it's all about free will. The origin of Alexander is not a Calvinist. He doesn't affirm the, the, the tulip, the five points of tulip, nothing like that. He's being quoted out of context for, for it seems like nefarious purposes by people who conveniently misrepresent his actual beliefs. Origin of Alexandria deeply and truly believes in free will, and we will be learning that as we go through his explanation here of the golden chain. He starts out talking about this verse, but we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And he actually seems to understand that this verse is about synergy. And uh, re remember that that verse it, it literally uses the word synergy. The Calvinists hate synergism, even though it's actually a biblical word and they champion in monergism, which is not a biblical word. And so in this passage that's used as a Calvinist proof text that God works all things, it, it actually says God works all things together and uh, naturally it's pointing to us. He works together with us. And Origen points that out here. So let's go ahead and read that. For those, however, who love God and cleave to him with total loving devotion, all things, as we have said, collaborate and help, even contribute something of its own effort, insomuch as these things would establish them in the good. That is never subject to change. So this is a collaboration. This is a synergy going on here that he points out. But then he needs to address this golden chain, which it appears that the people in his time in Alexandria take as fatalism. He says, but if there are some who love God and others who receive the spirit of slavery, it must be seen whether perhaps even what he says for those who are called according to purpose and those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son might not be appropriate in respect to those who are in the spirit of slavery, for they too can indeed be said to be called, but not called according to the purpose. And since they are still in the spirit of slavery, they cannot be established among the many brothers, of whom the Son of Love is the firstborn, and the image of the invisible God, and the firstborn of all creation. So he has this term, these people are in slavery, and uh, just before in, in these paragraphs, he explains that this is not like something that's out of their control, out of their free will to do. This is a category that people put themselves in. He says, moreover, I'd like to investigate what is said conformed to the image of his own son. Interesting thing in his commentaries on Genesis, when God makes man in his image, the image that he states that God, how he interprets this is that image is Jesus. And so man being in the image of God is actually man being in the image of Jesus. And elsewhere he describes Jesus as being a representation or a partaker of the divine. Because Celsus criticizes Christians because Jesus was a man. Jesus had a body. There, there's decay there going on. That, that fundamentally violates what the divine world was in Platonism. And so that's the criticism. And Origen spends a, a fairly large amount of time trying to explain that how Jesus could be divine using kind of Trinitarian type arguments in which Jesus is a participator with the divine. His material body is is uh, like kind of maybe like an avatar thing that Augustine writes about where 
where it it's united to the divine it's not actually divine the body because of course he's he's accepting the platonistic categories things like that but it, it's just funny how he describes this and that's what this image means and so all all are being in the image of god and being conformed to the image of god this, this is being conformed to the image of jesus skipping down for he says those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son let us not pass over what he has said he foreknew and predestined for i think that just as he has not said concerning everyone that they have been predestined he has not said concerning everyone those whom he foreknew for not according to the common opinion of the multitude should it be thought that god foreknows good and evil but we should think in accordance with the custom of the holy scripture and so that, that's just Let's think what he's arguing here. I don't think he's arguing that God doesn't foreknow good and evil. I think he's going to turn here to claim that these are colloquialisms in the Bible, and we need to be thinking of these things in a different manner, a different respect. The words don't mean what the multitude, which is interesting, the multitude, the people in Alexandria that he's been interacting with, uh, they believe that um, God predestines all things. They're, they're, they're the fatalistic kind. And he's going to be arguing against that. He says, For let the person who is diligent in the scriptures observe where he finds the scripture to say that God foreknows the evil. In the same way, it plainly says that in the present passage concerning the good, that those whom he foreknew and predestined be conformed to the image of his son. So the argument that's going to be set up here is that the foreknowledge here is not like a conceptual knowledge of something. Instead, it's like familiarity with or interaction with, and it's a different type of knowledge. And God doesn't foreknow evil because God's not a participator with evil. Evil is outside of God's character, whereas good is part of God's character. And so the foreknowledge in this very passage is talking about a different type of foreknowledge than, than propositional knowledge. For if it is those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and yet no evil man can be conformed to the image of the Son of God, then it is obvious that he is only speaking of the good, whom he foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So this is a very interesting argument here, and I think I think very much Origen is correct, um, and his arguments here are correct as well. The Calvinists say that God foreknows everything, but this passage here, in laying out what the Calvinists claim is a metaphysical linkage, Origen is fighting against the Calvinists of his time. Uh, they claim that this is a metaphysical linkage. God foreknows everyone in their mind. And so everyone should be conformed to the image of God, right? Is, is, is that how this works? No, it's not. So he argues, that's obviously not that. That doesn't make any sense. And so it's this different type of knowledge. And this is something else is going on in this passage. This is not a proof text for determinism, Origen argues. Of the others, however, God is said not only to foreknow, but not even know them. For... Quote, the Lord knows those who are his, end quote. But to those who are not worthy to be known by God, the Savior says, quote, depart from me because I never knew, have known you, you workers of iniquities, end quote. So uh, Origen does this thing that uh, modern Christians do where you just kind of grab passages from everywhere and you say, well, th this passage over here is talking about knowledge, and so we'll, we'll apply it over here to this passage talking about knowledge, and and then we'll use one to kind of interpret the other. This kind of kind of a quasi quasi scholarship type thing to do, which is are are the people in the different passages even talking about the same thing? 
But Origin's point, and I think he illustrates this, is that the wor words don't have defined and uh, meticulous meaning. It, they have flexible meanings. There, there are such things as idioms. And he does demonstrate that idioms are a possibility. And then he goes on to argue that this is an idiom or colloquial speech, or this is just how the word is used in this very passage. This is not about a conceptual knowledge. This is about this type of familiarity that in other passages in the Bible, when it talks about, he goes on to say that uh, Adam knew his wife Eve and then they conceived. He's saying it's that type of knowledge. It's, it's not, we, we, we shouldn't take it as like a conceptual knowledge. This is a familiarity. Therefore, in the same way, even in the present passage, whomever God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But it is not said that he foreknows the other, not because anything can be hidden from that nature, which is everywhere and never absent. So he's, he's talking about some sort of conception of omnipresence within God, where God is everywhere present. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting little takeaway from this. But because everything that is evil is deemed unworthy, both of his knowledge and foreknowledge. So it, it's being used in, in an idiomatic sense when it says that God doesn't know evil. God doesn't know bad things or wicked people. It's idiomatic. It's incompatible with God's nature. Six, this is, this is going to be an interesting, interesting point by origin. Accordingly, those whom he foreknew and predestined, but consider even this, whether God can be said to foreknow and predestine in respect to those who are not yet in existence, or in respect to those who indeed exist, but are not yet, quote, conformed to the image of the Son, unquote. And it is more suitable to speak of foreknowledge than in the case where what is not in, yet in existence is about to happen. For in this, it is more a question of choice rather than foreknowledge of the Creator. For where will the foreknowledge appear, since what is future depends on the decision of the agent? And so I posted this quote on the God is Open Facebook page. I said, what is he talking about here? Because we do know that Origen is not an open theist, but this sounds very open theistic, where choices and decisions cannot precede the agents who make those decisions. It sounds like he's speaking open theism. He's not an open theist. He's... he's He's quite explicitly elsewhere, not open theist. So maybe he's inconsistent, or maybe his views grew, or maybe he's using these terms and arguing in a way that um, we, we, we just can't uh, categorize directly. But let's, let's look at the words being used here. But consider this, even this, whether God can be said to foreknow and predestine in respect to those who are not yet in existence. So if we are using origins understanding of the word foreknowledge it's like having a familiarity with and predestination he seems to within this passage assign some sort of almost fatalistic element to this word predestined and but in his conception that he's setting up here that god doesn't foreknow or predestine god god doesn't gain familiarity with and then set people on a certain course until those people actually exist and so that, that seems to be what this statement is communicating. He says, Or in respect to those who indeed exist but are not yet conformed to the image of the Son. So there might be evil people, and those people are neither foreknown, God doesn't have that intimate familiarity with them, nor predestined or set on that course of action, because they're not yet up in conformed to the image of the Son. 
Uh, that's one thing about when we're talking about omniscience yeah, with Calvinists or anyone, people automatically assume it's this uh, Platonistic concept of omniscience. And that's that. those are the only options. Either God has this ungenerated eternal foreknowledge of all things from time eternal or else uh, he doesn't have uh, real omniscience. Those are, the, those are the two options. How about acquired omniscience? Is that a thing? And within literature, you have uh, various deities acquiring omniscience at some point within their life. So those are things. And right here, we see the wording he uses. Of course, he's not using it in a conceptual knowledge basis. But God becomes familiar with people during their own lifetimes. And then God predestines them within their own lifetimes once he knows the course that they are going to take from his interaction and, and in his familiarity with them. That spawns the predestination, that causes the predestination, that makes God decide to predestinate those individuals. And it's more suitable to speak of foreknowledge then then in the case where what is not yet in existence is about to happen and so he, he's saying that foreknowledge is better applied to just understanding someone's character as things are happening Let, let's see what how he illustrates this for in this it is more a question of choice than of the foreknowledge of the creator for where will the foreknowledge appear since what is future depends on the decision of the agent this sounds very open theistic and so when I posted this on the Facebook page, people are saying, Origin's an open theist. Origin's not an open theist. And so what possibly could this mean? And that's the question I asked. Um, I think what he's doing is he's, he's setting up a parallel. He's making us think about how we interact with people and uh, how we know what people are going to do before they actually do those things. He says, for... In this, it is more a question of choice than of the foreknowledge of the Creator. So the foreknowledge is not the thing that's causing anything to happen. It's the choices of the individual. For where will the foreknowledge appear, since what is future depends on the decision of the agent? I think he's talking about us. I think he's talking about our familiarity with other people and how we know how people are going to act and behave based on our familiarity with them. And so he's illustrating to us that foreknowledge doesn't cause things to happen, but vice versa, that the agent will decide to do things and we're, we're already familiar with the things that they're going to do because of our knowledge and interaction with that individual. That's what I think is actually going on here. I don't think he's making an open theist argument that nothing can be foreknown in, in, in the Greek sense in which uh, propositionally there's the truth values associated with future events. Nothing can have a future propositional truth value unless um, it's faded. And if there's a decision, a free will decision of an agent, it can't have a propositional truth value. I don't, I don't think that's actually what's being argued here. I think instead this is an argument to make people understand that you could be familiar with what someone's going to do, but not cause that decision to actually happen. He goes on to say this, Above, he said, those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined. Now he adds, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And if we interpret foreknew and predestined in the general sense, remember, He's interacting with Calvinists. He's interacting with fatalists. He doesn't believe in fatalism, and he's arguing against this sense. 
So the general sense within Alexandria, in the Christian community, not necessarily the Jews. Remember, Origen is very critical of a Jewish scholarship who ascribes God having a body, things like that. The general sense in Christian circles, in Alexandria, in Christian Gnostic circles, is that fatalism is true, Calvinism is true. This passage is talking about uh, Calvinistic predestination of all things that people have no free will in. He's arguing against that. That's what he's trying to take down with this explanation. He says, if we interpret foreknew and predestined in the general sense, it will surely seem that the one who is justified is justified because he has been called, and the one who has been called is called because he has been predestined, and the one whom has been predestined is predestined because he has been foreknown. Yet once more, the contrary is to be understood. Whoever is not justified is not justified because he has not been called, and the reason anyone is not called is because he has not been predestined, and the reason one is not predestined is because he was not foreknown. And behold, unto what an absurd interpretation they would fall who understand this in the case of the foreknowledge of God, as if only someone who knows beforehand what will come to pass afterwards. For through the things that we have set forth above, it is found that God did not foreknow those whom he has not predestined. And again, if to this popular understanding is applied that which says that those whom he called, these he justified, we shall be opening a huge window to them who deny that it lies within man's power to be saved. Origen argues it is within man's power to be saved. For they say, if it is those whom God has foreknown that he is also predestined, and if it is those whom he is predestined that he has also called, and those whom he has called who he has justified, those who are not justified are not to blame. Notice the, the moral responsibility that's being set up here, that if man has no volition in, in this chain of events, then, then they're not blameworthy. They understand this, this very crucial, this crucial concept of justice, that if you're fated, there's no blame. For they were neither called nor predestined nor foreknown. Then the following is also openly objected to us. Not even all who are called are justified, but even the apostle Judas was called, but he was not justified. But even if anyone contends that he was justified by the very fact that he was called, he was at any rate not glorified. Moreover, those concerning whom the apostle says that they have made a shipwreck of faith had indeed been called, but they were not justified. And accordingly to the parables of the gospel, those who excuse themselves when the servants were sent to them had been called, but they were not justified. And he who enters the feast of the king did not have wedding clothes, was called, but he was not justified. This is, this is actually a point that I've made before. In the parable where Jesus explains calling, people reject callings all the time. So calling's not an absolute thing. Calls can be rejected. Uh, your your uh, predestination can be rejected. Your salvation can be rejected. The, these are normal concepts. So it's a very big mistake to just return to a passage by Paul and then think it's a metaphysical chain of events. Uh, Paul says, gather around, everyone sit down. Let me explain to you the metaphysics of the universe. The, th this thing means this thing and this thing means this thing and there's nothing anyone can do to change it. It's not what's happening here. Paul is not just setting up metaphysical principles in the abstract. He's giving practical, a practical flow of events from God's interaction with people. And in the way that Origen claims here, the foreknowledge is not like some sort of 
uh, having knowledge of something before it exists. It's God's familiarity with people who exist at the time. And he predestines or specifies and picks those people in real time to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's, that's what's going on in these passages. Origin's absolutely right. Since these individual instances are so construed, how will the apostle's words that he has recalled about foreknowing, predestining, calling, and even justifying appear true? For my part, I think in accordance with what we have explained above, that we need to go over again the customs in scripture, which habitually uses certain colloquialisms in this discourse, i.e. in knowing, in order to determine how God knows or foreknows. For example, when it says that, and Adam knew his wife, Eve, this is said for, he united with his wife. And again, of Rebekah says, she was a virgin, a man had not known her. Moreover, the sons of Levi, it is said that they would punish transgressors because none of them knew his own father and mother. Doubtless, what is being made known here is that he was united, not united in his affection and love with his father or mother. Furthermore, you will discover many things said in the scriptures about knowing with the sense, and therefore is it established that in this present passage, as well as the apostle had set down this his word, knowing in accordance with the custom of the Holy Scripture. I think it's uh, Matt Chandler. Uh, we, did, we did the review of Matt Chandler, and he makes this point, that the foreknowledge in the New Testament is not a propositional knowledge of things before they happen. It's actually a prior familiarity. It's, it's a love relationship bond. Of course, to Matt Chandler, it's being a Calvinist. It's this eternal, eternal love of God uh, that applies to us. But with an origin and open theism, God's foreknowledge is just our familiarity with us as we exist. The foreknowledge does not pre-exist us. Origen writes, His aim is to show that those who are foreknown by God are those upon whom God had placed his own love and affection because he knew what sort of persons they were. You remember how the, the Jews foreknew Paul? That, it uses that word. It just means they're familiar with him while he was growing up. And so in the same way, uh, Origen writes, in accordance with this, it has been written, the Lord knows who are his. Though surely, as far as it pertains to this ordinary knowledge, God not only knows who are his, but also he is not ignorant of those who go astray from him. He's pointing out, though these words don't have to be these, these metaphysical absolutes. They, these, are, these are idioms. He writes, there remains for us still the solution to this problem. How can it be that those whom he called and those whom he justified, when we have stated above, it is certain that many are called, but few are chosen. But it seems to me that there are different kinds of callings. He points out the, there's different types of callings. This is not talking about everyone. Not everyone's foreknown. Not everyone's chosen. Not everyone is a predestined. These, these are subgroups. Scrolling down, he writes this, For even if, for instance, we were to imagine that God does not know some future thing in advance, it was without doubt that it is the way that it is. For example, consider the fact that Judas became a traitor, and the prophets had predicted that this would happen in this way. Judas did not betray because the prophets had predicted it, but because he was uh, going to be a traitor, and the prophets predicted these things that he was going to do out of the wickedness of his own purpose. For surely Judas had it within his power to become like Peter and John had he wanted to, but instead he chose the desire for money." rather than the honor of the apostolic society. And the prophets, seen in advance, this his will of his, committed to the annuals of their books, in order that you might know that the cause of each person's salvation is not placed in the foreknowledge of God, 
but in one's own purpose and actions. Observe Paul as he expresses fear, lest perhaps, after he has preached to others, he himself might be rejected, and so he punishes his own body and subjects it to slavery. He's not a Calvinist. He thinks that people, uh, it's within people's volition to choose salvation. Not a, the Calvinists would have an epileptic fit upon hearing this. They don't, they don't like people choosing salvation. So in conclusion, let's talk a little bit about what we've gone over here. Origen, he's not an open theist. He's a definite Platonist, but he's a Platonist that believes in free will. The people of his time that he interacted with, the Christians and the Gnostics of Alexandria, they are these Calvinistic fatalists, and they argue that Paul was arguing fatalism within Romans 8. But he counters and says that using their own standards, um, you can't come to those conclusions because their standards has a foreknowledge of everyone. And if that's the case, then having this chain of events being caused by foreknowledge, it, it doesn't conclude because not everyone is saved and conformed. And there's people that are rejected, as we see throughout the Bible. There's callings that are rejected. Not everyone who's called is justified. And so considering these things, we need to look at how language is used within the Bible. Foreknowledge does not mean having propositional knowledge of things in the future. Instead, it's having an intimate familiarity with people, which then allows us to predict how those people are going to act, and those people act on their own volition. And so God can use this information in order to set these people on this chain, this golden chain, as we read in Romans 8. It's not a fatalistic text. Uh, people are not... Uh, fated to make decisions one way or the other. People can choose salvation. People have free will. This verse is not about Calvinistic predestination or Calvinistic foreknowledge. Instead, it's about this cycle of how God treats those people who he's familiar with. And that's Origen's argument. Anyways, if there's any questions or comments, put that down below. Thank you for listening.